0: A Dublin drug dealer walks into a Chinese restaurant. He doesn't order anything. Instead, he hands over a bag with 50 grand, 100 grand, maybe more. Shortly after, in another European capital or the Middle East, his gang associate walks into a Chinese restaurant and picks up a bag of cash. The same amount, well, less 9% handling fee. The money is laundered and out of Ireland. Ireland. When the Criminal Assets Bureau raided properties in Dublin and Wicklow, they discovered an underground bank.
1: You know, they pretty much got more than they bargained for.
0: That's Irish Times crime editor, Conor Lally.
1: They found evidence that there was a foreign transfer of cash without the cash ever going anywhere.
0: In this underground bank, designer handbags are currency, while a new Instagram generation of young Irish criminals flaunt their wealth. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Bernice Harrison. Today, the underground bank that launders Irish gangland's cash. Conor, in your article for the Irish Times, you wrote, early one summer morning in 2020, teams of Gardaí, led by the Criminal Assets Bureau, that's the cab, fanned out across Dublin and into North Wicklow. They had 13 sites to search in a money laundering inquiry. But what they uncovered was the Dublin underworld's secret bank, Can you take it from there? Can you explain what that banking system is? How does that work?
1: Yeah, so this was run by a group of Chinese people involved in organised crime here in Ireland. And essentially what they were doing was they were running a variety of uh, services to, I suppose, launder and transport cash overseas. And the people availing of these services were Irish organised crime gangs, including the Kinnan cartel. So one of the services that they offered, for example, was they would... Count your cash for you. So if we think of the drugs trade here, it's all based on cash. All of the drugs that are bought in, you know, on the streets or in pubs and clubs is all paid for in cash. So drug dealers end up with a lot of cash. And if you're a senior drug dealer and you've got a team of people selling drugs for you, you will end up with wads of money after, you know, every weekend or every week. And the Chinese were essentially providing a money counting service in a house in So the cash was dropped in there. It would be counted for you and it would be parceled into, you know, parcels of like a thousand euro or ten grand. And you had to pay a fee for that. So that was one service they were offering. A second service they were offering was if an Irish organised crime gang here, for example, wants to move, shall we say, 300,000 euro from Ireland to Amsterdam. Essentially, what what they do is they bring 300,000 euro into a Chinese restaurant here in Ireland. It's obviously a Chinese restaurant that is part of this whole criminal enterprise. So they bring their 300,000 euros in cash in and they effectively hand it over the counter. They then get the name and location of a Chinese restaurant in Amsterdam where a person of their choice can call in and can collect 300,000 euros. So the money is essentially then transferred from Ireland to the Netherlands without cash ever actually going anywhere.
0: Connor, it's a remarkable system. It, it's almost like the criminals and their Chinese associates are recreating the banking system from first principles. Uh, you wrote in your piece that the bankers charge fees and the fees can be up to 9%. Nice money for taking in and handing out bags of cash amid dumplings, prawns and chicken chow mein. So how can these criminal gangs Trust one another with the money.
1: The system really depends on a great level of trust between the Irish crime gangs and the people from China who are in Ireland. And then obviously it involves a lot of trust then between the different groups of Chinese people in both Ireland and in continental Europe. And then the third element is Each Chinese restaurant that is involved in this, they need to start off with a big wad of cash. Because if a scam that you're running involves having to take in and hand out hundreds of thousands of euros at a time, you've got to start at the very outset of that process. You've got to have hundreds of thousands of euros in cash to get that going. But once it's up and running, it seemed to work here quite well for a period of time. Now, the guards reckon that that particular service was only being offered for about a year or two before these people were caught.
0: You also report about another surprising method, I think, used by this underground banking system to get money out of Ireland. And it involves luxury goods. How does that work?
1: So essentially, the service around luxury goods, what the Chinese group, in Ireland did was they took you know thousands of euros obviously tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of uh, euros at a time off Irish organised crime gangs they would then take some of the money and they would send people into places like Brown Thomas to buy really high value items like handbags so they may go in and buy two or three handbags for 20 grand a piece 30,000 a piece the handbags were then brought to China and they were sold there And then essentially that meant they were turned back into cash. So that cash was then laundered through the sale of these luxury items and it was then funnelled back to the Irish gangs in Ireland. So it had temporarily been converted into high value items, brought to China, sold. Retransferred transferred back into cash and then brought back over to Ireland again. Now, the one unanswered question we have about that is is that we don't know how the money in China reached the people in Ireland again. That part of the process hasn't been tracked down by CAB. The inquiry into that is still underway, but it is a question mark as to how the proceeds of the sale of the items in China got back to Ireland.
0: It seems to me, though, that, you know, obviously... These designer handbags, very, very expensive. Presumably that also applies to watches as well. Presumably that's another sort of currency as well. But at the same time, you need to buy an awful lot of them to get rid of all this money. Is that not the case? I mean...
1: Well, you would, I guess, yeah. I mean, you'd certainly have to buy, I suppose, four or five high value handbags, even to launder and move maybe 100,000 euros. But as I say, this was very attractive to Irish organised crime, this way of transferring the cash from Ireland to really any part of Europe. Obviously, we're an island nation, so almost all of the drugs we consume here is actually imported from suppliers abroad. So they have to be paid. So that means the cash that you uh, raise from drug deals here has to go abroad again to pay the people that you got the drugs from. And then a lot of our senior drug dealers who ultimately run these very large crime gangs live in Europe or even further afield. So at some point the cash has to go back into their pockets. So for Irish organised crime... Getting drugs in is always a challenge but then when the drugs are sold here getting the cash back out of the country is always a risk and we have had a lot of seizures of, like, vast quantities of cash being found by customs officers in ports and airports, by the guards and so on. And that money is on its way out of the country, back to either drugs suppliers in in uh, Europe or the Irish gang leaders who are in Europe. And I suppose this service of transferring cash overseas without the cash ever having to go anywhere, that took all of the risk out of transferring sums of money. It took all of the risk out of it and you only had to pay a fee of about 9%, which, you know, sounds a lot. But if it means you don't lose an awful lot of the cash that you're trying to export, it's a good deal, really. So that was really the main service that attracted these Irish crime gangs.
0: Can I ask you just one thing? If, you know, these big brands, these really big luxury brands that make these high value items, the last thing they want to be associated with is this sort of dodgy activity? Did you, when you were writing this piece, when you, you talked to Cap, did you reach out to any of these, these brands to find out what they, what they think?
1: Well, not really, because, I mean, there's no, you know, there's no allegation of wrongdoing here, obviously, on their part. And I mean, I think luxury items have always been popular with people who are involved in organised crime. They have a lot of cash and they, you know, they have to spend it and they have always been attracted to luxury items, be it, you know, clothing, things like very expensive handbags, uh, very expensive jewellery. And I guess this is a way of flaunting their wealth and it's a way of, you know, showing off how successful they are, basically. So uh, the fact that they have been, I suppose, using luxury goods as a vehicle to export and launder their cash it's only a subtle change on what they've always been doing, and that is just buying up these goods to use and show off, basically.
0: Now, for this story, you interviewed Detective Chief Superintendent Michael Gubbins. He's the head of the Criminal Assets Bureau CAB. Is he satisfied, actually? that it's over, that these guys were caught.
1: Yeah, he he is satisfied that it's over. Um, It was a very specific group of people who ran the operation here and they have been caught. Some of them are still under investigation by CAB and various other parts of the Guard. Others have fled back to China. Uh, So you, you probably won't get them back to go on trial here. But certainly the group of people that ran this enterprise has been broken up and, you know, the senior people have gone abroad so certainly the services they they were offering were unusual. The way that you could hand in a large sum of cash at a Chinese restaurant here and then collect an equivalent sum abroad um, hadn't been found here before.
0: Does it exist elsewhere?
1: Yeah. International Organised Crime runs a similar system called Halewa and Again, that kind of, um, you have people involved in that who are in various locations all over the world and you will give them cash and they will have colleagues in other parts of the world who will then pay people if they have a password for the money and all of that. So that is a system that has been in place internationally for quite some time. The system that was being run by the Chinese people here is a version of that. And it's the first time that kind of system has been found by the guards here.
0: Coming up, Conor Lally explains how Instagram has changed the way Dublin criminals look. Now, as well as how criminals conceal their money, you wrote that Detective Chief Superintendent Gubbins, he identified a big change in the way Irish criminals, and I suppose maybe maybe younger Irish criminals are spending their money. Hmm. Can you explain?
1: Yeah. So I mean we've always you know, we've always known with organized crime here in Ireland and, you know, really all over the world that a lot of these people, while they will seek to conceal their money in the sense that they'll try and explain it by laundering it through various means. They also have to flaunt that cash. And a lot of it is around trying to show off to their peer group how well they're doing, how successful they are. So they'll be driving around in, you know, very expensive cars. They'll buy houses normally in the areas where they're from. They'll get huge extensions done, lots of work done. They'll go on foreign holidays several times a year, often in very large groups of people often paid for by one person in that group just to essentially show off that they've got lots of money. But one of the things the guards are seeing in the last few years is more spending on things like plastic surgery, sunbed sessions. And a lot of these guys have got their teeth done. So they've got work done on their teeth. They've got them bleached and all kinds of jobs done on their teeth. And what the officers in cab will say to you is, is that This kind of stuff is really brand new. Even 10 to 15 years ago, the people who were senior in organised crime here, if it got out that they were in any way vain, that would be regarded as a kind of a softness or a weakness. They were, you know, always trying to project the image of the violent hard man. But this new generation of criminals is apparently, according to Cab, very influenced by things like Instagram for reality TV much in the same way that young people generally are. And what they're looking for the whole time is they're looking for ways of spending on their appearance and they're looking at opportunities such as as I say foreign travel, going to major soccer matches, MMA fights, that kind of thing so they can take pictures when they're there, show them off on Instagram and basically I suppose, project this image of themselves to the world that they're high rollers, they've got plenty of money and they're basically spending it all over the world. And they're not inhibited in the sense that they'll have a permatan all year round. They'll have very white teeth. Some of them have had hair implants and all that kind of thing. And just, I suppose, the pride they take in their appearance is a new thing and it's a way of showing off how much Cash they have because obviously all these procedures and treatments, you know, they can be very, they can be very, very um, expensive.
0: Now tracking all that, of course, must be a gift to the cab. At the same time, I mean, it's it's hiding in plain sight. But and look, on one level, it does seem sort of laughable, you know, the flashy criminal with the fancy car. Mm. But Gubbins told you that it does have another impact in the way the local community begins to see very, very clearly that crime pays and that it may act as sort of a recruitment. Other kids might be more tempted to join in if they see can see really what crime can buy.
1: Yeah, this is it really. And I suppose if you look at some of the people who are involved in the Kinnehan Cartel's Irish group and that ha- that Irish group has been referred to as the Lean Burn Crime Group during CAB's uh, court cases and really, you obviously had leanburn at the head of that gang. That group handled the Kinnehan's drugs in Ireland um, and it was a very large group. You know, it was kind of headquartered in Crumlin, where leanburn is from. And a lot of the men involved in that group had a very long run of dealing drugs. Some of them went to prison for various periods of time, but a lot of them really... I suppose, had a 10 to 15 year stretch of importing a lot of drugs, selling a lot of drugs and earning, a you know, vast amounts of money. And when you have that income over a very long period of time, you know, very often they're able to buy up several houses on the same road. Get very large extensions done to all of the houses. Get a lot of other work done on the on the houses. so you have these enclaves of properties and as people pass through, they would see you know maybe three, four or five houses that are completely out of sync with the other houses on the on the street and then often outside these four or five houses, you'd have very expensive uh, luxury cars motorbikes very sporty motorbikes and you would literally be able to see the wealth and as far as cab is concerned obviously this has two impacts it is very annoying for the genuine people who live close by who have jobs and are out working hard trying to you know pay their mortgage and so on but it also acts as you say as a recruiting tool for younger men particularly who are from those areas And what the Criminal Assets Bureau has found is, among this kind of Instagram generation who are involved in organised crime, the guys at the top of the tree will be going on very expensive foreign holidays, they'll have bought houses, they'll have got jobs done on their homes, and it'll be really clear that they just have lots of money. And then the younger guys, maybe 15 years and older, they will be just starting out and it's important for them to be seen to have a few quid as well. So they will, any any cash that they get from their drug dealing, they will go off and buy the Canada Goose jackets, the kind of Montclair jackets, the very expensive trainers, you know, trainers that cost seven euros €800. And I suppose that's their version of international travel and owning properties all over the place. And highly visible. And highly visible. And I suppose once they get into that culture of trying to keep up with the Joneses with all these various props and pieces of property and cars and all the rest of it they're then just part of the culture and they're just sucked into it and maybe they become the people who are leading the gangs in, you know, 10 years time, 12 years time. So the one big change that Cab has seen is the influence of Instagram, reality TV and a lot of these guys now who are involved in organised crime want to be tanned, shaved, waxed and have very white teeth and really look like the people they see on Love Island. And as the officers from CAB would say, that's the complete opposite of what the hard men who occupied the top jobs in Irish organised crime, that's the opposite of what they were about even 10, 15, 20 years ago.
0: Now, in a previous episode of this podcast, you talked to my colleague, Conor Pope, about how CAB has been a major success in its own terms, so much so that many Irish criminals have been forced to flee abroad to evade its reach. What impact has that on the criminal landscape of today? Yeah,
1: that is a very interesting point. A lot of these guys, particularly the men who would have been targeted in the very early days of Cab, I mean, Cab was um, Cab has been on the go now since uh, nineteen ninety six, and really there was a generation of criminals there who were targeted very early. People like Jerry Hutch, for example. Now, Obviously, he, he Jerry Hutch has, you know, he's lived abroad, but he's largely stayed in Ireland. Um, but a lot of the others have actually gone abroad, and the reason why they have is because they know that if they want to enjoy the lifestyle that they're able to enjoy, it'll be very visible here and we have a particular guard, a bureau, who can come and take your house off, your, your, your cars and so on. And very few other European countries have those powers. They cannot go after your assets unless you've been convicted in the courts. So if they want to seize a drug dealer's assets, they can only go after your assets if you've got a conviction for commercial scale Drug dealing, So definitely it's easier for CAB here than it is for other police forces abroad. So a lot of these guys have fled abroad and did so from the early days of CAB. And then what we have in more recent years is, I suppose, Irish criminals who, from their late 20s to their late 30s, who have grown into senior jobs in Irish organised crime, they get so big and then they're targeted by CAB and they will go abroad. And what happens to them is really, while, yes, you can continue to run an organised crime gang in Ireland from abroad, it's definitely harder. And your leadership over your gang begins to be undermined, that's for sure. And the people who are left behind here in Ireland really have to step in and, and, you know, run that gang. When they start doing that job, they realise, I can do that job. And they want to progress and they see the absent gang leader, they see that as an opportunity for them to, I suppose, take a piece of the big action for themselves. So, cabs action, it can trickle down through these groups. It can force their leader abroad. It can embolden them, the people who are left behind. And those people who are left behind see it as a power play and they try to grab that power. And this often causes a lot of really extreme problems within organised crime gangs. And that can weaken them, that can split them, and it can just cause a lot of problems. So those knock-on impacts of those cab actions can wind their way through these gangs and they can cause tensions and splits that can be very harmful. So it's about so much more than just Mm. taking their goods from them. It is. It really weakens them, it reduces the comfort zone around them. Another thing that the officers in CAB will say is is that everything has a price now really in Irish organised crime. I mean, arguably it it always did, but what they mean by that is, Irish men who rose to the top of organised crime here in Ireland generally did so because they were rough and tough. They could push people around and if they didn't get their way, they would attack people, shoot them, that kind of thing. But what's happened now as the drugs trade has expanded really over the last 10 or 20 years, you've got a large number of players now who have become very rich. And once you have the money, you don't really have to carry out the violence yourself. You can essentially pay people. So violence is outsourced. And what that really means is is that the toughest man is not always the guy who rises to the top of Org- of Irish organised crime now. Very often it can be somebody who's more strategic, who gets rich quickly, very early on during their time in the drugs trade. If you look at somebody like Liam Byrne, he was the third leader of the kind of, cartel. I don't think Liam Byrne is the kind of character on his own who could have gotten to that leading position in Irish organised crime. But he got there because others had to leave that job, essentially, at the top of that gang. And once he was there, he had so much cash that he could pay for any service that he required, whether it was for a person to be shot, for properties to be attacked, cars to be petrol bombed. Once you have the money, you can pay for all of those services. And that is a thing that Senior guardy will tell you has changed here. It's just that outsourcing of violence and being able to pay people to attack your enemies, basically.
0: That's it for today. For Conor Lally's interview with the head of the Criminal Assets Bureau, subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Bernice Harrison. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.